speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 18 of the Man of Screen podcast. My name is Mike Jumo, and on this episode, I am going to take a look at the next two episodes of The Adventures of Superman. The Case of the Talkative Dummy, and The Mystery of the Broken Statues, Episodes 3 and 4 of Season 1 of The Adventures of Superman. And I will not be alone this week, as I am going to be joined by a man who's becoming a good friend and my semi-regular co-host, Bob Fisher, of Superman Forever Radio and the Giant Superman Podcast. He will be joining me later. But before we get into uh, this week's show, I want to talk a few minutes about a couple of things I've done, a little bit, a few changes that I've made to the way I promote the show. About 20 of you know that when I started the show, I created a Facebook page that you can like, in Facebook terms at least, and I've recently changed it a few weeks ago to a public group. And the reason I did that is because I never felt like the page was doing what I wanted it to do. I wanted my Facebook presence to be kind of a community, a place where we can all get together and chat about things, Superman-related, DC Comics-related, movie-related, you know, anything we wanted, you know, between the shows and about the shows. I kind of modeled it after the way the uh, some of the Two True Freaks shows handle that with, like I said, the groups as opposed to the pages. I just felt like the page wasn't getting enough traction, and I think I've been proven right almost immediately as far more people have acknowledged and reacted to the posts that I've been making since I went to a group. So... I'm pretty happy about the way that's going as of right now. And also another thing I wanted to talk about, this came through just a couple days ago. For those of you who remember my first episode of Man of Screen Extra, in which I hosted with Rebecca Johnson and Bob Fisher, we discussed the role and the usage of Superman on Supergirl, which for season one was on CBS. It's going to be on the CW network for Season 2 and beyond, along with the network's other DC shows, The Flash, Arrow, and Legends of Tomorrow. But the big news this week, at least as of this recording, I'm recording this intro on Thursday afternoon, June 9th, is that Superman is going to appear, actually appear as a character, on the first two episodes of Season 2 of Supergirl. And a lot of us are happy. Eh, I am. I'd love to see the Man of Steel on TV. Getting to see new Superman on TV or... In the movies every couple years, it really isn't enough. So I don't mind seeing him on TV. I'd like to see him used better now that we're going to cast him as an actual character than he has been in the past as just a kind of a pair of boots on the table. I am happy Superman is going to appear in the show, and I am also very nervous. Happy because, like I said, anytime I can see Superman on TV, that's a good thing. Nervous because, well, when they haven't been able to use him... Superman's portrayal on Supergirl hasn't exactly been the most flattering thing in the world. You know, aside from picking her up at the spaceship and dumping her off with the Danvers and going and going on his way, which is very Silver Age, 
In his next appearance, the show kind of made a big deal out of Supergirl being able to defeat a villain that Superman was never able to handle. That didn't really sit very well with me. In that same episode, he helped her. Might have actually saved her life, and she was extremely ungrateful. That didn't sit well with me. But it was really the way he was used at the end of the season that really got under my skin when, early in the episode Myriad, Kellex, his ro- robot fortress servant, told Kara that Superman was off-planet. Fine, I'm okay with that. But then to bring him back onto the planet, just to kind of fall in line with all the mind-controlled humans, because he grew up watching Sesame Street, you know, that didn't sit very well with me. And neither did him being inexplicably unconscious during the rest of the season. During the second half of the season finale. With Superman being cast on the show, I'm interested to see how he's going to be handled. And I fully expect that at some point, probably due to them starting to adapt Flashpoint onto the Flash show, I will not be surprised at all if that plot device is used to merge the Supergirl universe with the rest of the CW universe. These producers love doing crossovers, so... I think it'll be a little bit of a pain if they have to keep going to the other universe to get Kara. So I am fully expecting Supergirl to end up on the same universe as the CW shows. Beyond that, it would be pretty cool to once in a while see Superman show up on The Flash or Arrow or Legends of Tomorrow. So really, the possibilities are kind of endless, especially with a shared universe or multiverse or whatever you want to call it. I'm excited to see where that's going to go. And maybe, I make no promises, but... Since Bob, Rebecca, and I got together to kind of complain about how Superman was used behind his back in Season 1, maybe I'll see if I can get them back together and we can take a look at what we've seen after Episodes 1 and 2 of Season 2 in the fall. Once again, I make no promises. Stay tuned to the Facebook group and to Twitter for more information as these things get closer. So, with that being said, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo. And then I'm going to come back and have Bob Fisher with me, and we're going to talk about the case of the talkative dummy. Hang around. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You Starfleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will surely become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. Here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. And as promised, I have with me Bob Fisher. Hello. Yay. And and like I mentioned, we're going to go into episodes three and four of the Adventures of Superman TV series, The Case of the Talkative Dummy, and 
The Mystery of the Broken Statue. Great episodes, yes, both, both of them. Well, you know, I'm a little jaded, of course, because as I've said before, Mike, and I've told others this, I love the whole series, all six seasons of it. But to me, you know, any of these uh, shows in the first season are just so far above all the rest. Even though two or three of my favorite episodes are in the second season, overall, the first season of this show is just an incredible, it's just an incredible series. And uh, I think we've mentioned before that in the TV guide, they didn't list this as Superman kid show or whatever. It was listed as an action adventure crime drama. And, so, these, and these two episodes are definitely that. Absolutely. And, and some, you know, some pretty good mysteries and pretty good whodunit. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially dumb. Broken Statues is a little more like the Da Vinci Code, put up, put together all the clues and figure out what they're trying to say. Right. And you can't figure it out until the end. No. You know, the, the, you have to get right there in. You might figure out what's going on, but the actual clues and stuff, that's a fun one, too. I'm looking forward to that one, too. All right. So. Ta talkative Dummy. Yep, here we go. The Case of the Talkative Dummy. This was originally broadcast on October 3rd, 1952, written by Dennis Cooper and Lee Backman, and directed by series regular, at least early on, Tommy Carr. Guest cast was Sid Saylor as Marco, Tristram Coffin as E.J. Davis, Pierre Watkin, our old friend from Superman the Serial, as Harry Green. He'll make a number of appearances in the show. Robert Kent as the safe mover who speaks, as opposed to the one who doesn't say anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Philip Pine as the usher. Stephen Carr who I believe is the brother to Tommy Carr. Correct. As We're going to see him a number of times, too. Stephen Carr as Chuck the Armored Car Guard, as opposed to Hayden Rourke, who will be playing the phony Armored Car Guard. <laughs> and let's, it's a oops. complex little story. It is. Let's move right into our synopsis, brought to you by the SupermanHomepage.com. It is Jimmy Olsen's birthday, and Clark Kent and Lois Lane are celebrating by taking the young man to see the ventriloquist act of Marco and Freddy. Good uh, trouble is, it's uh, full of snow. What's snow? Nothing. What's snow with you? <laughs> <laughs> I understand that you uh, missed school today. Why was that? I, uh, I had a toothache. Well, did you go to the dentist? No, why should I? Uh, the one that ate was the one in your yard yesterday. <laughs> under the apple tree. What's that? I said under the old apple tree. Freddy. This is the third time this week you've missed school. What's the matter? Don't you like school? Oh, I can take it or leave it. I uh, think I'll leave it. Down by the old mill stream. Down by the old mill stream. Down by, down by the old mill stream. Missing school so often. No wonder you're still in the third grade. Why a boy 14? Eleven and a half. A boy 14? Eleven and a half. All right, all right. Eleven and a half. A boy 11 and a half shouldn't... Ladies and gentlemen, excuse me. What happened? Is that all there is to the act? Uh, something went wrong. Two men exit the theater. We're from the Daily Planet. Oh, you were out front? Then you heard? Yes, that's why we'd like to ask you. Look at him sitting there so innocently. In the shade of the old apple tree, down by the old mill stream. Eleven and a half. He knows he's 14. He's been 14 for the last 10 years. It wasn't Freddy's fault, Mr. Marco. Someone else put those words in his mouth. Someone else? But who? Obviously, someone out there in the theater. But why would anyone... Oh, of course, to ruin my act. Some unscrupulous rival who's jealous of my success. Can you think of anyone? 
Well, there's no, no real performance to that low. Has anything like this ever happened before? Yes, about a month ago, we were playing Portersville. I thought Freddie was trying to take over the act. I had a long talk with him afterwards, and he promised. Oh, but of course it wasn't Freddie at all. Well, what were the words he added then? Well, he kept saying he was only 10 years old, and I don't remember the rest. And there's no explanation you can think of? None at all. It's all very, very strange. Well, thank you, Mr. Marco. If anything like this happens again, you'll let us know, won't you? We may not be able to do much, but we can help a little. I'll let you know. According to Lois, both the ventriloquist and the dummy were talking at the same time. About a month ago, an armored truck from Greens Incorporated carrying half a million dollars had disappeared. It was last seen heading onto the turnpike for Watsonville, but it never made it to its destination. Daily Planet editor Perry White has ordered Lois and Clark to do a follow-up story for the newspaper's Sunday supplement. Uh, Lois? Kent, do you remember that business a while back with an armored car? The one from Greens Incorporated? Remember it? Are you kidding, Chief? An armored car with a half a million in cold cash just doesn't disappear every day. Got any new leads, Chief? No, I haven't. All the police know is what they started out with. The car was last seen heading onto the turnpike for Watsonville. And never showed up at the other end. Vanished into thin air. That's about the size of it. Now, here's what I want. Hop out to Greens and see what's happened there since the disappearance. Maybe there's been a shakeup. Extra precautions, security measures, things like that. Talk to Harry Green, the president. Get pictures. I want a background yarn for the Sunday supplement. Something I can use in two parts. Right. After his photo was taken with his secretary, E.J. Davis, Green explained some of the new security measures to the pair of reporters. A Green's armored truck is now at the State Commercial Bank. The guards have finished loading money into it at 11.30 a.m. They then open the secret orders for Mr. Green. Cars to go down Apple Tree Road and on to the Old Mill Cutoff. The men are suddenly forced to stop when they find an automobile being repaired. Chuck, the person who has received the instructions, is suspicious, but he has no time to act, as the security officer with him knocks him unconscious. The thief then helps his partner load the car onto a larger truck. $200,000 was stolen in the second robbery. Lois and Jimmy have figured out the thief got their information from Freddy the Dummy. I've been reading your story about the armored car robbery. Clark, where have you been? I've been looking all over. It's about that story, Lois. It certainly is. The route of the armored car. It went out Apple Tree Road to the Old Mill Cutoff. And that's what the dummy said the other night. Under the apple tree, down by the Old Mill Stream. Not only that. He said he was 11 and a half years old. That's 11.30, the time the armored car took off from the bank. Well, looks like you've both figured it out. Whoever put those words in the dummy's mouth was tipping off the crooks that pulled the job, letting him know when and where to do it. Clark, we've got to go to Henderson with this. Sure, let's go. Not you, Jim. You've got some work to do. Oh! Since Freddie and Marco were talking at the same time, Lois and Clark tell police inspector Bill Henderson that a second ventriloquist is involved in the band of criminals. If you ask me, Inspector, there's someone behind this ventriloquist feeding him the information. How's that again, Kent? Well, now look. First, they're the men that actually pull the job. They get their instructions through the ventriloquist. And that's all they know. Then there's the ventriloquist himself, the one who puts the words in the dummy's mouth. Now, he gets his instructions, let's say, over the phone. And as for the payoff, the ventriloquist must get his through the mail. The crooks take theirs when the job's through. And as for the rest of it, well, that's delivered in some roundabout way to whoever's behind all this. In other words, a chain. None of the parties know each other, so no one can squeal if anything goes wrong. That's it? Well, I'll buy that, Kent. But what makes you think there is a second ventriloquist? Why couldn't Marco be Marco, the one? Marco, don't be ridiculous. He and the dummy were talking at the same time. Now, we'll check on him anyway. In the meantime, I better call Harry Green, tell him we've got some new leads. 
Get me Harry Green. Jimmy has gone to Green's Incorporated to pick up some pictures that Harry Green has chosen for the newspaper story. Suddenly, he sees the usher from the theater in which Marco and Freddie were performing. The man enters the office of E.J. Davis. Jimmy is currently listening in to a conversation where he learned... Don't give me that. You know who I am and I know you. You take a good picture, Davis. What does that mean? I saw that article in the Sunday Planet. I recognized you right away. He used to talk a lot about you in a big house. Only your name wasn't Davis then. It was Al Rosselli. You pulled that big jewelry job back in 41. What do you want? Yes. Go on, I'm listening. I want more money. I take a big risk each time for a measly thousand dollars while you get a hundred times that much. All you do is sit here, make one phone call, start the whole thing rolling. What risk do you take? Why get should you... Get out. You ain't scaring me none, Davis. I got enough on you to... Get out. Oh, no, wait a minute. When Jimmy calls Perry to give him the information, he's grabbed before he can reveal anything. Perry has ordered Lois and Clark to find Jimmy. Unfortunately, a traffic jam would make them difficult to arrive at Green's, where Jimmy was last seen. Meanwhile, Green has learned that Davis has not seen Jimmy, who has been placed inside a safe that is about to be taken away on a block and tackle pulley by a rental company. At the same time, Lois and Clark are stopped at a traffic light. This always happens. Jim's in trouble. Well, it's only two blocks, Clark, and I can't go through a red light. Lois, look! It's Jim. He's in that safe. In that safe? But Clark, how did... Clark tells Lois, however, he disappears before she can question him about his knowledge. The ropes around the safe have broken, but Superman catches it and saves Jimmy in a nick of time. And, of course, Lois questions him. Jimmy, are you all right? Yeah, I, I guess so. My, my legs are a little weak, that's all. That was a close one. And if it hadn't been for Superman, why... How is it you always manage to show up at the right time? That's my job, Miss Lane. Where was I? Up there? Gosh! Jim, a word of advice. After this, keep out of other people's safes. You bet. Jimmy has told Lois and Clark what they've learned. They give the information to Inspector Henderson, who has gone with Lois and Clark to see Marco and Freddy's next step. Clark leaves Henderson and Lois to follow the usher, who is really the second ventriloquist. The man goes into a phone booth where a call from the mastermind. What? Another job? Tonight? Davis, you've got your nerve after what happened this afternoon. What do you mean, what happened? Look, Davis, I'll do it. But from now on, my price is 5000 That's right, you heard me. Five grand. Well, okay. All you gotta do is tell me what to say. Miss Lane, why couldn't you let me know all this before? I could have had the whole case wrapped up by now. With Davis and the usher and the pokey, maybe Green would stop breathing down my neck. He's a friend of the commissioner, you know. Henderson wants to arrest the usher right away, but Clark convinces him to wait, so the police can set a trap for the criminals. Marco and Freddy have begun their act. Freddy, this is the third time you've missed school and played hooky this week. What's the matter? Don't you like school? Oh, I can take it or leave it. I uh, think I'll leave it. With Uncle Irving. What's that? I said with Uncle Irving and Aunt Magnolia. Missing school so often, no wonder you're still in the third grade. Why a boy 14 should... 13 and a half. A boy 14? 13 and a half. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Did you get it, Lois? Irving Boulevard and Magnolia Street. 13 and a half. That'll be 1.30. Good. Irving and Magnolia at 1.30 tomorrow afternoon. We'll be there with bells on. Once again, 
two men leave the theater before Marco walks off, and then Clark reveals that he heard Harry Green give the usher the orders, and Henderson and Lois do not believe them. So after the police have arrested the usher and searched Davis's apartment, Roselli himself is pointing a gun at Harry Green. You set me up as a fall guy. You knew that if anything went wrong with your plans, the first one the police would come looking for is me, a three-time loser. Your record? Of course I knew about that, but what They the... came to my apartment. The police. But I got away. They're not getting me yet, Green. I've got a score to settle first. Davis, put that gun away. Have you lost your senses? I'll take that gun, Davis. Whoever you are, stay away from here. I'll shoot. Don't be a fool, Davis. You're in the clear now. Better keep it that way. In the clear, but I thought... I know what you thought, Green, but you're all through. You've given yourself away. Shoot him, Davis, shoot! Superman knows that Green engineered the robberies and proves this by using his X-ray vision to find half a million dollars in the office safe. With Green's gang now in prison and the money returned to the banks, Lois wants Clark to tell Henderson and her how he learned that Green had planned the operations. Suddenly... The phone in Henderson's office rings. Lois, thinking Clark got lucky, asks him... All right, Clark, if you're so smart, who's on the other end of the phone now? The chief. And if we're not back at the planet in 15 right, seconds flat, we're both going to get fired. Now, come on. Oh, uh, uh for you, Kent, your boss. Hey! So, Bob, what did you think about, about this episode? Well, I really like the talkative dummy for for many reasons. Actually, you know, it's it's for for people my age, and if you go back to the fifties when this when this show was done, ventriloquism was huge. It was a huge, huge form of entertainment. Every variety show had a ventriloquist on it. Ed Sullivan practically every week had a ventriloquist on it. I know a lot of modern people just cringe when they hear in the comic that Superman saved the day by using super ventriloquism, you know, but, but I, I have always loved ventriloquism. And as a little kid, Loved guys like Edgar Bergen, who had Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd for his dummies. And then the best of all time for me was Paul Winchell, who'd had uh, his dummies, Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith. And they were huge. Paul Winchell was huge at the time this show was on the air in first run, particularly towards the late 50s of 56, 57, 58. Paul Winchell was huge. So ventriloquism for me goes back as long as I can remember as well as other things. It, it probably didn't mean much to you, Mike, being so much younger, but you probably weren't that aware of what ventriloquism was when you were a little kid. But my generation, everybody knew. We all knew. And many of us even had dummies. I had a Jerry Mahoney dummy as a kid. I've been to several ventriloquist conventions that they hold at Vent Haven Museum in Kentucky. Every summer, probably going on right now. But the episode itself, talkative dummy, based on the dummy thing. Oh, oh, one thing I wanted to mention, it would have been nice. I would have, I think the actor that played the ventriloquist did a fine job. It would have been fun if they had used a real ventriloquist. Uh, but that's actually very rare that uh, a movie or a TV show that has a ventriloquist bit in it actually uses a real ventriloquist. They got better at that later. But no, I love this episode. It's very complex. There's stuff going on. You have to put the clues together. We don't see a whole lot of Superman, but that is not untypical of some of these early shows. Lois and Clark put it together, and then Superman saves the day at the end. Oh, oh one other piece of trivia about this uh, show. The safe scene where Jimmy is in the safe and is being lowered and the rope breaks and Superman catches him, and then they have that little dialogue together. Right. 
to show how out of order these shows were shot, that was actually the first scene that George Reeves and Jack Larson played together was was that scene of uh, him taking him out of the safe and then that little talk between Superman, Lois, and Jimmy, and then Jimmy, you know, but Clark does a little Superman smile and wink. That's my job. The case of the talkative dummy is a popular episode among many hardcore Superman fans, and it means a lot to me, too. It was the first time I got to meet George Reeves, and I'll never forget it, especially since I happened to be stuffed inside a safe at the time. During that wink, he gave Jimmy some sound advice, too, about staying out of other people's safes. Yes, exactly. But I love that. It was a great Superman scene. The car, as Lois and Clark are getting towards it, he sees it from a block away with his supervision and jumps out of the car and runs. And and, uh, this was a good Jack Larson bit. This was an early good piece of work from Jack Larson when he's talking to Green in Green's office, telling him that, don't worry, Mr. Green, our best people are on the job. Yeah. We're going to find out who. I mean, he's just a great little. And we hear him say his full name for the first time. Another yes, little piece Dean of trivia. Bartholomew Olson. Exactly. So the talkative dummy is is a fun, fun episode. Several of the actors go on to have decent careers, including the usher. Went on to play many different characters in the B westerns and mystery and crime drama drama movies of the day. So tons of good people. T- a really, really good show. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, what did you think of the show? This is one of this is one of my favorites. This is one of the few that I owned as a child. Yeah, when I was watching the show in the in, growing up in the eight, late '80s, this was on one of those Thanksgiving Superman festivals. Oh, right. Okay. So this is one of the one of the first episodes that I've had that I've had on tape. So I became quite <laughs> familiar with this with this one o- over time. You know, this one is just a lot of fun. I didn't. What I didn't notice until I got the DVD set was how early this one was. Right. This is the third episode, so this is this is the first time we really see the ensemble together. Exactly. We, you exactly. know, we had Superman on Earth where we saw them briefly, and the Haunted Lighthouse was a Jimmy show. Exactly. So this is the first time we got to see them all doing their bit, and you know, every, every everything was great. You know. Right. And Superman on Earth was actually the last show filmed this year for that series so it's kind of funny that the first show that aired superman on earth was the last one that was shot liked it liked it a lot this one is is an old favorite and you know what even though he wasn't a ventriloquist i'm sure they dubbed in some of his dialogue later when he was doing the dummy bit Mm -hmm. you could see his mouth moving just a little bit right well they very rarely didn't do uh, the stuff the only stuff that was dubbed in Afterwards was Usher stuff. The stuff we saw him doing, he was actually doing on camera himself. So he had enough training to to make it believable to kids that he was a ventriloquist, that that was his shtick. And the bit even now I still bought it. Oh, absolutely. And and he does. And ventriloquists are not crazy people. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of movies about, you know, them believing their dummy is real and the dummy coming alive and, you know, thinking ventriloquists are crazy. They may talk to their characters like they're real, but they totally understand. Even the scene in the dressing room after the dummy makes up, you know, when the ventriloquist, he says, and I give you all the best lines. And he's yelling at the dummy. He's having, the dummy is sitting over there. The ventriloquist is at the uh, mirror taking off his stage makeup and he's having a conversation with the dummy he's upset with the dummy for screwing up the act so 
it's just really terrific. And it's totally believable for the period. And again, shot like a small crime drama, a noir, noir, black and white, the wonderful shading, the lighting, the way they use the black and white to make certain things look more evil than not. And a nice little trick ending. They totally take the audience uh, in one direction. You believe that it is the guy green or the other guy that got out of jail that had the record. You totally believe it pretty close right up toward the end. And as we were mentioning before, Superman tells Green that he has him for attempted murder now. Well, no, he told, he comes in and and Green tells Davis to shoot him. Right. And Superman talks Davis down and Davis lowers the gun. But didn't, doesn't Green then pick it up and fire at Superman? Well, yeah, but Green was guilty anyway, so they had Green anyway. But Superman comes in to Davis, you're in the clear, but if you fire that gun... Right. You're not. Right. So Superman's letting them know that even if you shoot at me, you are still guilty of at least attempted murder. Personally, it's probably attempted assault with a deadly weapon because you're not going to hurt him. And and that's something we did mention before. Are you guilty of attempted murder if you attempt to shoot Superman? And it goes to intent, doesn't it? If you believe he's invulnerable and shoot him, then you're not really trying to kill him, are you? No. No. So, but it's an interesting question. It is. It's a very interesting question. I was kind of amused when uh, when that was mentioned this morning. Because as of this recording, the Mole Man episode hasn't come out. Yet. Oh. So I was expecting that to be talked about after the episode came out, and not before it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we know something is wrong right away as as the words are being put into the dummy's mouth. You see these two these two guys kind of sitting in the the other balcony and leave after they hear what they need to hear. Yeah, your typical bad guys. They're looking yeah. like bad guys. Their fedoras are, you know, uh, creased in the right places to look like bad guys. They, everything about them was, these are the bad guys. Right. And, of course, even me as a kid, I, I don't remember right off, of course, but I'm sure as a kid watching it many times as I did, that as soon as the dummy is talk, as soon as two people, two sets of words are coming out, while the ventriloquist is talking and the dummy is talking, you realize, well, they both can't be talking at the same time. Right. So something is afoot. Right. I love how Lois and Clark were just able to walk right into his dressing room unannounced. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do that all the time they, here. They just show up. <laughs> yeah, all the time they just walk into places and do what they have to do, man. Yeah. Get the story. And obviously Marco is jumping to the uh, obvious conclusion that just it's a, it's a rival wanting to ruin his act. But, uh, right. Right. He's not thinking that there's something far more nefarious at hand. And then, I guess this is one of those powers of coincidence that Perry's going to give Lois and Clark a story that ends up being related to all this. Right. Well, yeah, I don't think when they say somebody said without coincidence, you wouldn't have science fiction right. or, or wouldn't have comic books. Yeah. That's how you got to get the story from point A to point B. Right. And this episode puts a lot of time into trying to convince us that Davis is the, is the villain. Right. Right up, right from the moment where he doesn't want to be in the photo. Right. And also something that you see in the first season more than the other seasons, a lot of actual on outside shooting, a lot of cars and trucks. I mean, there's a really long scene where the truck, uh, as you told in your synopsis, where the, the truck 
turns off, the first truck turns off where he's supposed to. And a really long scene where the, the he has to stop because a car looks like it's broken down, but it's right. a trick. And then they just take over that truck and they take and put the armored truck inside like a, a big camp right. 18-wheeler type truck and close it up and then and move on. And you know what I think? Every time I see that scene, those two truck drivers that are taking those planks out that the car drives up on or the right. truck and the car drives on to get into the back of the big truck, those guys aren't wearing gloves. No. And and I think, man, that's got to hurt. And those splinters, how are you doing oh, yeah. that? How are you doing that with those old boards? One little slip or slide with the way they picked those boards up and no. threw them back in the back of that truck barehanded. And I, well, different time, I guess. But they looked like real work guys. They didn't look oh, like did. actors who were contracted. And I think this most recent time I was watching was the first time I realized that they're taking the guards too. Yeah, they took them all. They took everything. Yeah. I don't know if they mentioned that early in the episode. No, but I don't know if they even, and they never mentioned what happened to the guard. It's well, they, like mentioned they, that, they mentioned at the end that they recovered the, the money, the men, and everything. Oh, they did say men. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I was I, thinking with his x-ray vision, he saw the money in the uh, safe, in Green's safe. And that's stupid. Green kept the money with the bank ba- uh, wrapper around it. So, obviously, Green has gone a little overboard on the security measures. I mean, this is all very, this sounds all very CIA not telling the drivers where they're going until until they get in the car. Very, very selling, very spy stuff. Yeah, very funny. Very funny. Not funny, funny, but right. yeah, at the time, it's just really great spy stuff. It's all very secret and hush-hush. And again, they tried to set Davis up because Green right. said, no, only Davis and myself, no. Well, okay, I guess yeah. that means one of you guys is a bad guy, and gee, it won't be the boss. Why would you be stealing your own money from your own bank? Because you're a crook. I don't know about them, but it's definitely easy to believe now. Yeah, yeah, and we do get a good Superman scene. We get a, we get a, you know, a real good, the standard Superman up on the wire that they use several times to take off from the alley. But the great scene of him catching the, the safe, putting it down, and, and then Jimmy Jack Larson looking up. You mean I was up? Oh, oh up there? Yeah, yeah. It was really great. I I, I just love that, and I love the look in uh, uh, on uh, Phyllis Coates. She doesn't have a huge part in this one. No. Basically, her job is to get Clark from point A to point B so he can fly off. But but still a good episode. I really liked it. Yeah. And yeah, uh, some people don't because of the dummy aspect. I've heard that people will skip this one when they're watching the first series, first season. No, not and good. I have to I have to tell them, no, you better go back and watch this. There's a lot yeah, of good stuff in yeah, this. This one's a, this one's a fun, uh, you know, fun mystery. And this is the first time we see the Daily Planet staff investigating things. Exactly. They're doing their jobs. They're all being reporters. And Jimmy trying to be reporter and bigger and big, you know, it's just really good. Really good. And this is, we get our first look of the show of Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson. Uh, That's true. This is his first first episode. And that's true. He's skeptical, but he's listening to Clark lay out this theory about about the robberies. Right. But he's covering all his bases, though. You know, he's asking about Marco. Lois dismisses that, but, and Henderson spends this entire episode squealing because of, or squirming rather, because (laughs) Green is buddies with the commissioner, apparently. Right. Well, that's a typical, we see it all the time now in even crime dramas that I watch now, scripted dramas on TV. When the major case detectives are on the case and they're getting close to some rich guy, he will threat, hey, the commissioner is a friend of mine. Right. 
I have friends in high place. They've been using that for a long time, and they still use that. People who are rich and have friends in high places think that's going to get them out of things. And sometimes it does, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. And we learn that right in the next scene because the next scene is a phone call between Green and Henderson. We don't we don't hear Henderson, but Green is screaming and irate. No, nothing has come of the investigation in about a month, and he's threatening to call in the commissioner. Yeah. And this is when Jimmy's uh, bringing the pictures. I got a note here about this because Green is selecting the photos to be used in the story. As a newspaper person, that's a no-no. Right. That no, rarely happens. It doesn't. Well, I don't know about them, but it doesn't now. I mean, no matter whether it's a puff piece or not, the subject doesn't get to approve photos or copy. Right. There's always somebody at the newspaper that'll do that. Right. So I found it very interesting that he was approving the photos. And he even got Green in the photo. I mean, uh, Dave, Davis. Uh, Davis in the photo. So and, another little way to even make us think even more. Because that's how the usher sees the usher sees that picture in the photo. Right. Which, once again, the time frame of these episodes, it, it's almost like the Daily Planet at a drop of a hat can put out a special edition or oh, something. Absolutely. Because it seems, it seems like a day, maybe a day or two has passed. Right. If that, it well, it would have to be something because when when it starts, they're going to the performance of the ventriloquist, and then they go back again, and that wouldn't have been on the same night. No, maybe. So, maybe so we have a period nights. of time that does take place over this thing. Two armored robberies, a couple of shows, investigating, getting some clues, Jimmy getting the pictures, and then taking them to him for his approval, right. well, like you said, wouldn't happen. And then getting those back to the Daily Planet and getting the paper published so that then the usher can see it and say, oh, Davis, I know that guy. Yeah. So may maybe a week or so has passed. Right. So very interesting. And this is, and Jimmy is trying to reassure Green, and I'm like, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, no, Jimmy, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and like, like I said, this, we get our first nod of Jimmy's middle name, Bartholomew. What a poor man. James Bartholomew Olson. And I believe that's still his middle name to this day, I believe. Absolutely. Has not changed. I know they used it on Lois and Clark. Right. And was yeah, a, this was the first time they used it on the TV show, but I think I'm trying to... I don't know the information. I don't have it readily yeah, The available. Lois and Clark episode, I remember they were at some kind of magic show when Jimmy says his full name and Perry just looks at Lois and Clark and says, Bartholomew? Right. <laughs> right. And I'm looking at this set. I don't know if you noticed it all at the set. But this looks like it could be a redressed version of the hallway outside of Perry's office. You see the double the double doors in the back of Green's office. That almost yeah, like it wouldn't surprise me. The door to Perry's office, and I believe that plant is familiar. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise. Yeah, me. it wouldn't surprise me either. No, change the name on the door and move the furniture around, and it's a new office. It's amazing how the how we get everybody recognizes each other, but we don't know anybody's name because <laughs> Jimmy saw who it took me a minute to realize was the usher. Walk, walk into Davis's office, mm, okay. and, th and this is where we learn that about Davis's history, so, right? Of him being a former convict. So at this point, it's, the episode is laying is laying it on pretty heavy that Davis is the is the man here, right? Even not showing the face or even the body of the guy who comes in when Jimmy's trying to make the right. call, you yeah. just see his hand, and, and it could have been either one of the hands, right? Because. Because I noticed in the next scene where they're dealing with the guys in the safe, 
Green and Davis are both wearing a, a similarly colored suit. Exactly. One thing that could be a problem, I don't know how, how clear phone lines were in 1950, but Davis and Green's voices are clearly different. <laughs> right. Yeah, you would have still known in 1950, whatever, you would have known who's on the other end of the phone right. if you recognize their voice. Right. You would know there were two different voices anyway. But who knows? No. Who knows? See, I don't think Davis did himself any favors either by getting angry right away and throwing him out. Right. So obviously this is where Jimmy gets dragged into the safe. Again, you, this is a one-sided phone conversation. You can't hear what Perry's saying, but the way Jimmy is trying to, like, he seems to need to remind Perry of everything uh, that's going on. Right. I, I don't know if Perry's paying, playing dumb or just having a senior moment. Well, it's 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 a couple of things. One, obviously, it's Jimmy giving some more exposition to right. us but and telling Perry what's going on. But it's still part of the other thing. I can hear Perry on the other end of the line myself. Right. Telling, you know, saying, where are you, young man? Why aren't you here now? What do you, have you gotten those pictures? Chief, I'm trying to tell you. So it's it's Perry being Perry. Right. And you get that from the way. It's another brilliant little move from Jack Larson, a little acting piece there. You hear Perry, but you don't hear Perry. He's right. not on the other line. Nice little bit of acting. Apparently, whoever grabbed Jimmy knew that today was obviously uh, the day to return the safe to the rental company. <laughs> right. Well, it was definitely, we know at the end, it was Green who got him in there. Right. I think that's very interesting because Green doesn't look to me strong enough to knock out a 160-pound guy or more and then drag him and put him in that safe. Right. I don't think he could have done that by himself in real life, but obviously for the story, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Davis has, has Green sign off, sign off on the safe. So again, it's Leading us to think that Davis is behind all this. Right. Now, I noticed that when the safe movers are moving the safe, the official safe mover who talks. Yeah. <laughs> right. He, right. Makes a, he makes a note of how heavy the safe is. Shouldn't that it's they, heavier than normal. Right. right. Shouldn't they check this? Shouldn't they yeah, try to open the safe and see, and see if anything was in it? They, they just take the thing and assume that it's empty? Yeah, I don't know. That's... Something I have thought of in the past as well. When they mention it's heavy, why didn't you look in there? Right. Uh, or did they not know the combination? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not even sure why they were getting rid of the safe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know either. But today happened to be the day for the, for the safe rental guys to come because the plot demands it. Right. And they're using a technique out the window with a block right. and tackle. Because the freight elevator happens to be not working. Right. And, of course, one of the ropes that they're using is going to fray and to break. Right, right, because nobody, did, nobody decided to check to see if there was a 150 or so pound man in there. <laughs> <laughs> and now, they now when we get to Lois and Clark, they establish that they're two blocks away. Right, and but Clark sees him with his x-ray vision. Right, but it, it just seems like Lois can see the safe, too, from two blocks away. <laughs> well, it depends. If they didn't have to turn, if it was just straight... I could see where yeah. two blocks down a city block, you could kind of see that they're, you know, normal vision. You could probably see a safe being dangled out of a window up there. And, and I love Clark's exasperation about the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't tolerate it very long. No. And that great Nash Rambler that she's driving. Yeah. I like how he's sitting there pouting about it until he notices Jimmy in the safe. <laughs> and I, I like the x-ray vision effect. 
Yeah, I've always yeah. liked the way they did X-ray vision on on this series. Him doing a serious look or close up on his right. eyes, he squints a little bit and then just show us, you know, the real thing behind whatever he's looking. Right. This kind of like the kind of like, it almost looks like somebody took a pencil here and erased the safe. Right. I guess later on when we get to the color episode, they'll settle on the thing where they focus on his eyes and comes kind of comes out like binoculars and you see what he's looking at. Kind of like binoculars, uh, yeah, almost a double exposure, but a binocular, a layer, I guess, in Photoshop would right. be a better term, one on top of the other. This is the first time we see Clark run down his favorite alley. You know, the I, alley that is everywhere in Metropolis. Yes. You know, I actually looked to see if this was the same alley as Mole Men, mm. but it's not. No, it's a two different. It's a different one. Because they the, reshot this yeah, after Mole the Men. The alley in Mole Men said "Post No Bills" on one of the walls. Right. So I was looking for that and didn't see it. So this is definitely a uh, his new favorite alley. Right. I don't think they use any. I don't think they reuse any of the footage from Mole Men for any of these shows. There I might be a. I don't think so either. There might be a quick scene in Crime Wave where they use a lot of stock footage. Yeah. But I don't think so. I think Mole Men stayed pretty much unto itself. They reshot the wires and the shooting scene, the flying scenes. I love the wire shot from the alley. Yeah, that's one of my favorite that's takeoffs too. And there's still debate on on many places. If you go to The Adventure Continues, or you go to many of these sites or websites that talk about this, there is debate as to where the stuntman actually cuts in. It's definitely George Reeves running in, running back out, doing just a little bend and stoop before he jumps up and takes off and the wires take him out of frame. Well, if you look real close, people are saying that the actual, as he jumps and flies out, that's a stuntman. So it's still divided of whether that is a stuntman or not. They did a combination of stuntmen and George did his own wire work early on until it broke. Yeah, I'll have to have to look again because like the the front shot is awful quick. I don't know if you see his face or not. Yeah, see that's the point. You don't it's real hard to see his face when he face when he jumps. Right. As soon as he bends and then jumps takes off, that bit is really fast. You just don't even see his face. And if you do it's kind of blurred. And I think that's why there's been so much discussion about that particular scene of him coming out of the alley the very famous george reeves clark kent running into the alley superman running out and then at the very last whoop, takes right. off on the wires did they re reshoot the alley change for color episodes yes i don't remember how he took off how he took off that, that time he ran he would run to the camera and dive off the right he and, would and after, do the diving after, board jump exactly actually after the first season of the first four or five episodes, something happened. The wire broke in one of the first four or five episodes. And he said, no more, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. And that's when they came up. And I should know the guy's name because I did a whole thing on it. I'm going to do a whole show on it. But uh, the guy who invented the little pan, they did a big plaster mold of George Reeves' body. Right. And then made this pan that he laid in. And then they put his clothes on over top of that. So he could move. They could off camera, it was all attached to levers and stuff. They could move him left or right. They could tilt him left or right and move him up and down. And then they just moved the camera around him to simulate the flying scenes. And they did some of those really, really well in the, some of these later first season episodes and then in the second season of the pan. But most of the time, and after The Wire, it was George Reeves that came up with the idea of his landings of uh, the way he would come into a window 
They'd have a bar outside the window and he'd swing on it and then let go and swing into a room feet first. And he was always trying to get really, real high height uh, on those when he came into a room. He wanted it to look like he was just really flying in there feet first. And then, of course, after the wires broke and they went to the, how are we going to make him take off? There's a springboard right in front of the camera, and the camera is low. He runs towards the camera, right. hits that springboard, and jumps over the camera. Not an easy thing to do. If you look at some of the stills from behind the camera, that's a good 10-foot, you, you got to really jump. You, right. it's, in some of these scenes, on a high-def big-screen TV, you actually see the springboard, whereas on a little 7- to 10-inch black and white screen, which was the common size of a black and white TV in 1951, 52, 53. You didn't see any of that stuff. No. Most of that was cut off. So the stuff we're seeing now, a lot of times we'll see stuff. You'll see a shadow of a mic boom. You'll see shadow on the painted mural in the back. Lighthouse, for example, the Lighthouse episode. When Jimmy comes out of the of his aunt's um, home, house, you're supposed to be overlooking this field in the background where there's all this stuff back there. Right. Well, you just see Jimmy's shadow go right across it. Right. Right across the matte painting. <laughs> right across the matte painting. Exactly. So some of those things, and because they're on such a low budget, they one either didn't catch it at the time or when they saw it in post, they said, damn, we don't have enough money to go right. back and do that. We'll just, here we go. <laughs> and uh, honestly, how much better is, is 1950 television going to, going to do than that anyway? Exactly. Exactly. So, so some of these things you have to keep in mind is look that was the time it was in TV was so new at the time. They're kind of figuring all this out as they go. Exactly. So this is where we get to Jimmy, to Superman catching the safe with Jimmy in it. And we mentioned how we both love Superman's response to Lois. Yeah. That's my job. And I believe this is the first time we see both of them with Superman in the, th in the three episodes that have aired. Yeah. I'm trying to think if, uh, is it Jimmy that takes the picture in return of Superman on Earth, when yeah, but Clark was there. Clark, oh, that's right. Superman wasn't there. It was Clark and Lois were there with Perry. Right. Jimmy takes the picture. Perry says, "That's enough. That's enough. Get that right. to plate." Clark says, "Well, do I get? The Here's your answer, son." And he shows him the story of that. That's a great bit too. Yeah, that it end is. Piece with Lois and her. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And, and she, she's ever the reporter asking him how we get there all the time. Right. When every newspaper person in this city was breaking his back or right. hers. Yeah. Great, great bit. Great chemistry between George Reeves and Phyllis Coates oh, and all it, of this. It is absolutely great. It just burn up the screen, boy. I love it. She doesn't have the chemistry with Jack Larson that Noel Neal would develop later. Right. But she has it with Clark. Yeah. And here's the first time the show cheated on on a takeoff. As he walked off screen and you heard... The whistling wind sound. I love that sound. Yeah, it's that is my favorite Superman flying sound. Yeah, me too. As a kid, that's what we all did with our capes. That we made that sound ourselves. Right. I, I, I did it too. Yeah. And such a great. The, throughout the entire run of the show, the show will sell how loud that is, because the characters can hear it no matter where they are. Right. They could be locked in a vault somewhere, but they hear that. Yes. Sound. They know he's coming. So burn the money to make smoke signals so he'll see you. Yeah. What? <laughs> Stay tuned. So after this, we go right back to the theater for some more ventriloquism. And this is where Clark, we see Clark doing more detective work. <clears throat> he goes in, 
this is where we learn that the usher is talking to Davis. He actually says Davis. So again, well, it's the usher thinking he's talking to Davis. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Green ever identified himself as Davis. He's just assuming never no, no. And in fact, uh, he's just assuming that he's talking to Davis. Right. That's where they're leading us to, and that's where the usher thinks he's talking. After he sees the picture in the paper, the usher thinks now that Davis is the one giving him this information. Everybody thinks Davis, even the police inspector Henderson towards the end. They're all thinking it's Davis until Clark hears the conversation in the phone booth. Right. Well, even right after that, you see that Henderson is sweating because Green is breathing down his neck, threatening to to call the commissioner on him. Right. So as as soon as Clark... Clark says to him that he overheard the usher saying that there's going to be another job. He's like, all right, he's going to arrest the, he's going to arrest the guy and wrap this up quickly. Where Clark has to convince him that, no, we need to play the long game. And we need to find out what happened to the money and all the other guys. And he's squirming because he wants to get this thing done. But he realizes that Clark has a point. And I think Clark kind of overplays his hand a little bit. Or a secret, overplays his secret identity. When he drops the bombshell. That he heard Green on the phone. Right. Well, he does that all the time. Right. All the time. And we're in it on the secret, but, you know, he always covers it, touches his glasses, and says, well, what I meant was... Right. And right after Clark says it, this is kind of when things fall into place a little bit. Because when we're listening to the usher, the usher tells Davis, well, who he thinks is Davis, that he has some nerve after what happened this afternoon. Right. And it's clear from the usher's reaction that the person he was talking to didn't know about what happened this afternoon. So that's kind of our first clue that maybe it's not Davis. It's not Davis, right. And being that Clark has no explanation for how he heard Green, and he just walks <laughs> off. This is when we get our famous line from Lois to Inspector Henderson. See you later. Well, there he goes again. Inspector, where does he disappear to all the time? I don't know. Maybe he runs into an alley, takes off his glasses, and turns into Superman. Yeah. <laughs> a little meta there. It is very... Even then, you can see she doesn't buy it. She kind of just shakes her head and laughs and rolls her eyes. Right. So then the scene goes straight to Green, who's kind of sitting there counting his money. Now we're left to wonder, is this the stolen money, or is this some um, cash that passed legitimately? I'm sure a ton of money, cash passes through his hands. Now, of course, Davis comes in pulling the gun on Green. Because apparently, Henderson couldn't wait and sent and sent his men over to Davis's apartment. Right. This yeah, that was probably not a smart move on Davis's part. No, nah, he... But you he, can understand the frustration. He thinks he's getting framed. And, and you get the feeling that he's on the run. Right. The, that he uh, they, he knew they were at his place and he ran off. So he knows they're looking for him. Right. So I guess if he's going down, he's taking Green with him. And then, this is when Superman shows up. And... They're still playing around with that trope that nobody knows who Superman is. Because Davis points the gun and refers to him as whoever you are. Right. Well, that'll go on for at least half of the first season anyway. Yeah. They definitely abandoned it in the first season, in the second season. Right. Superman tells Davis that he knows it's green and that Davis is in the clear. And right after Davis won't shoot him, Green decides to... Because he's got a gun in his desk, of course. All criminals have a gun in their desk. <laughs> and you know, you, you look at him shooting the shooting the gun. There are no visual effects here. All you see mm-hmm. are the the smoke from the from the cap shooting. Oh, oh, right. They don't animate any bullets here. 
They, yeah. They'll do it later, no. but they don't animate any bullets bouncing off his chest. No. And Green knows he's had it. He's just right as that his shoulders kind of slump. <laughs> and Henderson is very pleased at his success. And Lois is still questioning him. And Well, it's her job. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how Clark manages to get out of these things. But does she not does she not bring this up again in the car? Yeah, wouldn't you like to be in that car? Yeah, right. You know, you know, like we talked about in Mole Men, what the flight back would have been like. She could have nailed them again after they got in the car on the way back to the planet. But you got anything else for this episode? I think we covered that one. I did. Not as meaty, not as meaty as Mole Men, but 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 still fun. Oh yeah, I I I love the episode. But you know, I'm going to say that a lot for all these first season episodes. I'll take a quick break, play another promo, and then we're going to come back with Mystery of the Broken Statues. Hang around. Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't let them Star Wars, those here in I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? <sighs> I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those, <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode, on Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to move right along into... The Mystery of the Broken Statues. Original broadcast date was October 10th, 1952. Writer was William C. Joyce. Directed by Tommy Carr. Must be the uh, staff director. Guest cast included Tristram Coffin as Paul Martin. Michael Vallon as Mr. Benelli. Maurice Cass as the owner of the Elite Gift Shop. Philip Pine as Dorn. Here's Stephen Carr again as Mr. Edwards, Wade Crosby as Pete, Buddy Mason as the cop, Joey Ray as the newsman. Here is our synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Paul Martin and his assistant Dorn have just entered Benelli's artcraft shop. They approach a display counter with ten animal statues. Oddly enough, Dorn smashes all of the plastic figures while Martin pays Mr. Benelli for the entire lot. Dorn looks through the debris to search for something. However, the object is nowhere to be found. Shortly after they leave, Lois Lane enters the store to pick up a picture that Benelli had repaired for her. Good heavens, what happened? Craziest thing. Two fellas walked in. One was a nice-looking gent carrying a cake. 
I just can't believe it. It's like in a dream where everything gets smashed up. You mean someone did this deliberately? The fella stood right here smashing them on the floor. Ten of them. Here's the money. You mean he paid for them and then smashed them? No. The little one smashed and the big one paid. <laughs> it's cuckoo. Oh, you want your picture, huh? I had a little trouble with the handle, but if you lift it carefully, I think it'll hold. Thank you. Glad to do it. By the way, I'm sorry about the breakage. <laughs> All I'm sorry about is they didn't smash some of the $50 faces. But Lois later discovered something else while searching for china cups at Edward's China and Ceramic. Oh, no. Wasn't no bull in the china shop, lady. Don't tell me, I'll tell you. Two men walked into the shop, a tall one and a short one. The short one smashed him and the tall one paid for the statues. How did you know? I read mine. Since 3 o'clock, seven shops throughout Metropolis, including Benelli's and Edwards, have fallen victim to Dorian and Martin's strange spree of destruction. Cheap plaster animal statues have all been broken by the pair of men. Seeking a story for the Daily Planet. Thanks a lot. Bye. You look like you just won the Pulitzer Prize. Mr. Kent, I have just stumbled onto the wackiest story this side of a nuthouse. Now get this. At 3 o'clock this afternoon, two men walked into Benelli's art craft shop... And smashed shop. a lot of cheap plaster statuettes. Well, how do you know? Oh, I get around. Now, don't be difficult, Clark. They've done the same thing in seven places, and I have a list of 12 more here still to check. Is there a Davis Brothers 416 Kingsley Drive on your list? Yes. Well, Mr. Davis called. It seems they went into his place and smashed 14 statues, and he wants us to send a photographer and shoot the wreckage for free publicity. What do you make of it? Well, obviously, they're looking for something. How big are these things? Oh, not very big. White plaster, real cheap. All the same? Sort of. Animal subjects. Horses, cows, dogs, cats. Clark, will you be a good sport? Mm-hmm. I have a hunch there's a story behind this statue-breaking binge. Now, let's buy some of them and see what's inside. Here, you cover five of the places and I'll cover six. Oh, Lois. Where's your spirit of adventure? But this is silly. Now, look, I'll be home after I check my places. If you hear of anything exciting, let me know. Goes to five of the businesses on Lois's list of possible targets while Lois herself checks out another six. They intend to buy all the figurines they can find before Martin and Dorn can break them. Two places on her list were already visited, but Lois was able to purchase 15 of the animal figures. She finds a small brass key inside the second one that she has broken. She and Clark are now speaking with each other on the phone. Hello. Clark, I found something. You did? I bought 15 of the statues, and guess what? In the last one, I found a small brass key. And that's not all. They'd already been to two of the places on my list. Huh? Now, it doesn't make much sense, but at one of the places, McVeigh's, the, the, the owner saw them pick up a small acorn and a little toy automobile. And at another... Well, now, wait a minute, Lois. I want to write that down. Yes, and a little toy automobile. And at the other place, I think it was the Art Mart, they found a safety pin and a small dried-up onion. Just a minute now. Safety pin and a small onion. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Maybe not. How did you make out? Well, they'd been the four places I checked. I haven't checked the fifth one yet. Stir across town. I'll call them as soon as you hang up. Oh, getting interested, huh? Mm-hmm, sort of. They find anything at your places? Yes, they found a dollar bill and a little plastic cow. It gets crazier and crazier. I want you to hide that key that you found. I'll get back to you later. Okay. Not realizing that Martin and Dorna follow Lois. They compare notes, including all the bizarre objects that the pair of vandals have found inside the statues. Martin and Dorna have just taken Lois in hopes of finding the key she has hidden in her lipstick case. 
Meanwhile, two men that work for Martin named Pete and Charlie are smashing statues in the elite gift shop. Elite gift shop? This is Clark Kent of the Daily Planet. We're checking on two men that are going around town smashing statuettes. Oh, yes, they're here now. Having a wonderful time. I have 19 of those horrid little things, and if they hadn't smashed them, sooner or later, I would have. Call the police and have them arrested. Oh, now, really, they, they're not committing any crime. They've paid for the little monstrosities. Let them smash them. Very well. Using Superman's speed, Clark enters bef just before Pete and Charlie leave with three cents. After Martin's henchmen put up a, a bit of a fight, Clark takes them to Metropolis Police Headquarters. Unfortunately, Inspector Henderson can't hold them on any charges. Lois is missing and her apartment has been ransacked. And there were no fingerprints, but Clark believes that Martin, one of the top confidence men in all the world, has taken her. We learn that Clark is right as we go to the National Import Company, where Martin has unsuccessfully questioned Lois about the location of, of the key she had found. Believe me, I deeply regret exposing you to these, shall we say, uh, disreputable surroundings. But I'm afraid you have no one to blame but yourself. Never mind the sweet talk. Get to the point. There is only one point. Where is the key you found in one of those statuettes? Aren't you tired of asking me that same question? You'll discover that I don't tire easily, Miss Lane. Nor does my associate. You interfered in something that was none of your business. You stuck your pretty inquisitive nose into a matter that concerned you not one whit. I know. Curiosity killed the cat. We may have to kill more than a cat before we're through. Don't threaten me. Dorn, leave her alone. Look, let's get one thing straight. That key belongs to me. I paid for the statue it was in, and I own it. And you and your friend here can threaten me until the cows come home, but it won't do you one solitary bit of good. Martin is currently making preparations for an airplane to take Lois to the mountains, as he finds that which he is searching in her lipstick case. As Martin and Dorn drive away with a bound and gag Lois, Clark and Inspector Henderson question Pete. He refuses to answer them until Henderson threatens him with a long prison sentence. Once more, where does Martin go when he holds up? I told you, I don't know. Okay, you asked for it, you're gonna get it. You'll be a three-time loser and go up for life if she have to frame you for no, it. No, you can't do that. Where's Martin? Well, he's got a place up in the mountains. Where? Rock Hollow. Is he there now? I don't know. I told the guy who runs his plane that... Plane? Yeah. Where's he keep it? Ramsey Airport. Hey, can't wait a minute. Can't wait, no time. This gives Clark an idea on where to find Lois. He rushes to the airfield as Superman, where Dorn and Lois are about to take off in Martin's plane. Dorn was ordered to keep Lois in Rock Hollow while Martin stays in Metropolis. However, Superman stops the craft before it can even begin its flight. Now Dorn is in police custody and Lois has just been saved. There. Well, we have an artist in our midst, Inspector. Well, at least it'll give you an idea. Now, the objects Martin and his men found in the plaster statuettes make up what's known as a rebus. And here's how it works. That's an acorn. Plus pin. Now, we subtract car. Now we add move for cow. Now we subtract onion. O N I O N. 
Now, we add a dollar. And we subtract three cents. Which leaves 97. Now, what have we got left? P-M-O-97. P-M-O-97. Let's kick that around a little bit. PMO 97 doesn't seem to mean anything. What about MPO 97? Hmm? Oh, don't look at me. I flunked simple arithmetic. What about PO 97? Let's see the M out for a moment. Well, it could be Post Office 97, either a box or a substation. Well, good girl. Now we'll add the M. It is a box. Post Office Box 97, Main Branch. That's right. There's something in Post Office Box 97 at the Main Branch that Martin has gone to a lot of trouble to get. Well, what are we sitting here for? He's got the key. Because the Post Office doesn't open till 7 o'clock in the morning. And I'll be there in person to help Mr. Martin open that box. Martin has taken his package from the Post Office Box. He is then arrested. And we return to Inspector Henderson's office, where Lois and Clark wait for him to open the parcel. This. It's a ruby. The Rensselaer ruby. That's right. The largest ruby in the world. Stolen three years ago from the London Museum. What a story. Thanks to Kent here. And to Superman. Like I always say, two heads are better than one. So, Bob, what do you think of this episode? Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> uh, this is one of my top ten favorites of the entire series. Definitely of the black and white episodes, but this is one of my top ten favorites. I love, 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 love this episode. Uh, it is a great, great Lois Lane, Phyllis Coates, investigative reporter. This is just a terrific episode from start to finish. Got a perfect bad guy, a rich guy that carries his walking stick with the diamond head around, similar to Bat Masterson. Um, and he's a recurring actor. He'll be back again playing a different part, but I, I can't say enough good about this episode. Some great Phyllis Coates screams. You know, we see her all over the place. This is just a great, great Phyllis Coates episode. Just, it just doesn't get much better. Next week's episode is my favorite. Is my favorite Phyllis Coates episode. Night of Terror. Night of Terror. Yeah. That one's also in the top ten. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this uh, episode they're was heavy Phyllis. Yeah. I thought this episode was a lot of fun. Well, I love the whole thing about the puzzle and, and, and putting it together and then trying to get, you know, more of the statues and break them and see what's inside before the bad guys do. Then the bad guys taking Lois and stuff. It's just, just so much good. So much good. No, really. I think the shopkeepers in this episode steal, steal the show. Because <laughs> right. These guys are breaking these statues and they just don't care. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, just wait for... Clark to have an aneurysm during this episode because he's because especially once Lois ends up missing, he is he's all about urgency and trying to find her, and these guys just don't care. Well, there's a great Clark Kent. You mentioned that this is a terrific Clark Kent episode, and one of the reasons this George Reeves is my favorite Clark Kent is he doesn't play the stumbling, bumbling, cowardly little guy. In a scene here, the two bad guys are breaking these statues when Clark comes in. And uh, he basically all by himself, when they say, get out of the way, but right, he, nice. goes, he goes slap, slap, turns them both around, grabs them and tells the shopkeeper to call the cops. <laughs> and Clark takes them in. It's just, it's a great scene. Love My that scene. initial thought at the end of this episode is, 
This is a long way to go to get a ruby. Yeah, well, it's the Rensselaer ruby. It's the right. biggest ruby ever. It's huge. Huge, and I say. It's huge. You know, if these guys were wanted to kind of do this on the on the, on the down low, maybe they should have brought the uh, statues back to their place and broken them there. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have been much of a show, though. But yeah, yeah, that would have been much more clever, wasn't yeah, but, it? So it's well, a, I love this thing. It's a lot of fun, though, just watching these guys throw these things on the floor to, to start the episode. Yeah, and then I love it when Lois gets into it, and she's just so thrilled, and she goes to this one shop and buys a whole armful of them, and she puts them on the seat of her car, and there's all these other ones still there already, and she's been around, and she's just, just putting it all together. Right. It's The excitement in her is just terrific. She knows she's on a good story. You know, I and love- even at the end... Yeah, go ahead. I love when she goes to the second shop after she leaves the first one. Yeah. She pulls up and sees the guy throwing the broken shards away. Mm-hmm. And she comes up to him. Let me guess. Let me, I'll tell you what happened. Two men <laughs> here came, bought a bunch of animal statues, threw them on the floor, and left. He's like, how do you know? I can read minds. <laughs> and she tarried. She scared the hell out of this guy. Yeah. She's just great. Just great. Even towards the end, when they finally get it on Inspector Henderson's desk, the box, right. and he's taking his time to unwrap it, and, oh, I need a this or a that, and she's oh, let me do it. Clark has to actually pull Lois away from the right. box. Calm down. And then, of course, Clark just, with his x-ray vision, we're assuming, sees in there, knows exactly what it is. Right. And when they can't figure it out, he picks up the receiver and smashes the egg, and there's the... Rinsler Ruby. You know, I could almost hear hear them when they open up the the box to find the pig in it. They're like, oh, another one. Right. right. <laughs> but, you know, like we mentioned, this episode does a great job of showing off Phil- Phyllis Coates as, as Lois. And not only is she tough and investigative, but she's she shows a lot of charm in this episode, too, I thought. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't think she can help but do that. Right. I think she is she's just so incredible. And I love when they get back to the office, and she's talking to Clark. Apparently, he one of the shops called into the planet because he wanted some free publicity. But Lois just ropes him into this. <laughs> he wants no part of this, but she just doesn't let him escape. Right, but, you know, he comes along. And there's a great line when he tells her certain things, and she's, oh, interested now. Yeah, huh? but I love his reaction when she suggests he takes six of them. He's like, oh, Lois. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe this is the first time we see Lois's apartment, isn't it? Yes. One of the few times. Yes. For this Lois. Right. When Noel takes her, we see hers several times. Right. But yeah, you don't see a whole lot of Phyllis outside of a working environment. That is a huge apartment for someone who lives alone and works at a newspaper. Yeah. Bigger than Clark's. Yeah, it is. Clark has a has a living room and a bedroom. Right. But Clark's place has a has a secret closet. <laughs> as we're gonna find out later. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Lois doesn't own any hammers or anything because she uses her shoe to break the statues. Yeah, but that's a great scene, too. That's a very female of the time period. Take off your high heel shoe, use the heel to smash something. And it was just, I love that scene. Love that. I love that whole scene of her in her apartment for the first time because she's so excited. She starts to smash it, and the acting is so good. It's as if right there in the moment she gets ready to smash the little statue and then thinks oh wait trash can to bring over a trash can so she doesn't make a mess and then start smashing things and i think okay was that written how did they do that that is so good and and she just takes it all the way and then when they come in to kidnap her we hear one of her 
patented, wonderful Lois Lane screams. Yes. Phyllis Coat can really let out a scream. Now, I don't think Clark went and bought a single statue. Well, you think he just looked at them? I think, <laughs> I don't think he went to any of the stores. It, it doesn't seem like he did. Well, yeah, when he's talking to her at his phone, he says, all right, because I found a few things, and he tells her what he found. Didn't he find the acorn and a couple of other items? I got, the feel, I got the feeling that he called the stores. Hmm, interesting. Because, because as he's on the phone with Lois, he mentions that he's going to call the next one. Okay, okay. Well, I kind of got the feeling he had called some of them, but I got the feeling he had actually been there because when he was writing down what she said she had found, right. I kind of got the feeling that he was saying, well, he found a few things too. Right. But what you're saying is, is he called them, had them smash them and tell him what was in them. <laughs> Either that or, or it had already happened and... And they told him what... And they, they told him what was found because yeah. I don't think he had any any of those items. Okay, Interesting. Interesting. I think I think that just shows how much more into this Lois was than Clark was. Okay. All right. Interesting. And then then he calls the last shop, and well, obviously before before that, uh, maybe Lois should have locked her door because these two guys just walk in very their apartment very quietly. Just walk right in. Yeah, they do. Sit right down. So now we go to the, to the last shop. This guy's just counting his money while they're counting the statues. I believe we're going to see this actor again. Uh, the shopkeeper? Yes. The uh, Oh, absolutely. Is he, is he the scientist from the Kryptonite yeah. episode? Yeah, he'll be, a, he'll be one of the scientists later. Right. I thought we were going to see that guy again. I recognized him immediately. Right. I'm not sure which one he is in the cast list. Yeah, I don't have the picture in front of me right now or seeing him, but if I saw him, I could probably tell you which one he was going to be in. Uh, he might have actually... see the one, too, in the... Forgery, the Paris. That's a color episode later. I think he makes an appearance in too. But I know he's in the black and white kryptonite episode. Right. As the scientist. The who, scientist who invented the fake kryptonite. The bullet, the shot in the dark. Right. Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, it was a great episode too. That's why there's so many good, good episodes in these black and white. Both the first two seasons are just brilliant. This is where Clark wants the men arrested. And. Like I mentioned, like the other two shopkeepers, don't care. I think, is this the one that makes the comment about how he's upset they didn't break the $50 statues? It uh, could be, yeah. It's yeah. one of them. Yeah, because they weren't breaking any laws. They were buying the statues and smashing them. No. They were awful rude and inconsiderate, but they didn't break any laws. Yeah, they didn't break any laws. They didn't care. He just got... And this guy hates the statues, so he's happy. He was just happy to get rid of them. Right. Ugly little thing. Yes. Horrid, I think was a, horrid. I think was the word he used, wasn't it? Right. These horrid little things. And this is the, the scene we mentioned about Clark. He's not taking any crap from these people because after they find their three pennies, he Clark is going to fight these two guys, even though he's not dressed as Superman. Right. Well, he wasn't going to let these guys leave. No. And he did it so quickly and so easily. It was just slip, slip, plap, turn them around, call the cops. And it was great. This next scene between. Clark and Inspector Henderson might be their favorite moment with the two of them. But what am I going to hold them on? I don't care. Disturbing the peace, willful destruction, anything. There's one thing you newspaper boys have got to learn. You can't take the law into your own hands. Now look, Inspector. This time, Kent, you pulled a real phoner. Those two guys may beat their crippled grandmothers five times a day and ten times on Sunday. They may be murderers and second story men, but in this case, so far as the law is concerned, they haven't done a thing. Just smashed 19 statues. They paid for them. And what about the three cents they found in one of them? Big deal. Those statues cost them nine bucks and they get back three cents. 
Oh, they can get real rich that way. Sorry, Kent, have to release them. Now, just a minute. Even if it's certain from the descriptions we got from various shopkeepers that the tall, smooth one is Paul Martin, one of the top confidence men in the world? Law, Kent, the law. What has he done to break the law? We don't know. Yet? Until we do, we can't hold them. Yes, sir. Release those two guys we just booked. They fill out form 114 and tell O'Brien to see to it. Where Clark wants them held, and Henderson kept saying, I can't hold them. They haven't broken any laws. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just go on and on about that for at least a minute or so. Yeah. <laughs> that is, you know. It was nice that those two guys actually liked each other, too, in real life. In the later seasons, you can actually see how much they liked each other because of their long, quote, two martini lunches. There are two moments that, in the series, between George Reeves and Robert Shane that stick out. Mm -hmm. It's this one, and in the face and the voice. You want to play tough? Right. When he comes in as Superman and... uh, Oh, and he's chasing him around the desk. Around the desk. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, and he picks up something on his desk and bends it. Right. I'm the real guy. Yeah. Okay, it? good. Use Bill as a volleyball in his own office. All right. So we, we get through that. And then Clark goes to Lois's. She's gone. Her apartment's ransacked. And Lois has been taken to a warehouse because all these guys have warehouses. And private planes. Yes. I'm getting the feeling Martin's got some money because men with, only men with money have canes like that. Well, right. That was, you know, they showed us right up front. As soon as we meet him, right. he has an expensive looking suit, a well-made suit, a hat, and a walking stick. And he's sitting in the back seat of his big car and the other thug is driving. And how so, many statues does Martin break? None. None. The other, he has his, other, his assistant do it all. Absolutely. He pulls out a great wallet, right? And not a wallet, not a quote bill fold, but a wallet that holds all your bills straight and doesn't bend them. And he pulls out what is it, five bucks or something, right? And uh, so they can yeah. smash up ten of those hearted right. little creatures. And even Lois is in a ton of trouble here, and she knows she's in a ton of trouble here. But she does not take any. She's not taking anything from Martin, and. Even though she has nowhere to go, she still tries to get away. Oh, great, great Lois. You know, I great guess. Lois, yeah. Phyllis Coates, to me, is still the gold standard. She's the platinum. She's the one that, if you're going to call yourself Lois Lane, if they're going to cast you as Lois Lane, I'm comparing you to Phyllis Coates. Yes. I have a lot of love and respect for Noel Neal. Right. Uh, for what she did and how she's carried herself and has been happy about this and who even lives in Metropolis now. But... Phyllis Coat is just the best. And I should say I should say my favorite, not right. the best, because you know there are people who will like any different Lois. There's been a lot of Lois Lanes. Everyone likes their version. Exactly. I don't know how long Clark and Henderson were sitting in that office, but they're starting to look a little disheveled. <laughs> Henderson is taking his jacket off, and there's something about the way Clark's suit is falling on his body that maybe maybe he unbuttoned it. They just look like they're relaxing. <laughs> Clark is doing the math with regards to the statues. And then they bring in that thug that they bring in. And Henderson starts interrogating him. Clark is a reporter. There's no way the police would ever let a reporter sit in on an an interrogation. This is where, you know, I kind of have to get used to the language of the time. 
because when, when I viewed these, some of these episodes for the first time, I didn't know what things like three-time loser meant. Mm, okay. You know, they, they don't really use that language anymore. Right. But eventually I figured it out. This would be his third time in prison. Right. And apparently that's the, that's what breaks him. Yeah, he didn't want to go. He knows if he goes back, he's going back for a long time. Now, I don't know what, what else Henderson was going to do, but he was rolling up his sleeves. Yeah. Like, was he ready to start punching this guy? <laughs> well, it's, again, first season, they're giving you the impression that there might be some physical violence. Right. But we don't actually see Henderson hit anybody. No. And so they get, they, they give it up, and Clark just runs out of, out of the office saying there's no time. He doesn't want to wait for Henderson. Superman catches up to the plane, and he stops it. It's an interesting way to stop the plane. Because if he actually tried to do that, the tail would probably break off. Probably. Whatever, he just does it. But he's Superman. He, he has is. good control. He, he can handle great. that. But he yeah. stopped the plane. Right. And then, obviously, we're meant to assume that he arrested everybody right there. Because the next thing we, we see is they're back at, at Inspector Henderson's office. And we're doing... They do all the math to solve the mystery. Right, because we don't actually ever see Superman interact with Lois or anybody else in this. No. He's pretty much Clark Kent throughout the entire episode, except for that. Except for when he has to stop the plane. Stops the plane, and that's an external scene with him pretty much by himself, with a prop tail plane. Obviously, Martin is arrested at the post office, so they just waited for him. Right. After they solved the code. And I love how Clark was the only one who, the one who seemed to figure out the code with, with his little chalkboard there. I wonder right. how long it took them to film that. I don't know, but apparently they didn't want to stop for anything because he breaks his chalk at one point. Keeps on going. Keeps on going. And Lois's body language is almost like uh, she follows the chalk to the floor. You watch her head. She follows. Right. And you almost think, oh, geez. But he just kept going. Yeah. He and he broke quite that. a few pieces of that chalk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, they probably did that a couple of times. Right. Because you can see on the blackboard where it's been erased. Right. Clark figure, figures it all out. I hate puzzles like that, personally. <laughs> <laughs> My wife loves stuff like that. Right. Not, you know, it was okay. Yeah. But I liked the, I liked the way it handled and the oh, fact yeah. that there was a code and it took a little brain power. But you'd have to go through the different combinations because any of those kinds of puzzles, when it's a picture of something plus something else, right. minus this, minus, how do you know to eliminate the I and the O? Or, the, right. or pl- how, com- how do you know you're subtracting the three pennies from the dollar instead of adding it to the dollar? Right. So a lot of it is you have to do it trial and error until it works out or guesswork. Uh, now, they just made it seem like clark had it all figured out well maybe and, maybe that was what clark was doing while he was sitting in the office with inspector anderson well i it probably was he probably knew what was going on by the time when he started getting all the toys and he talked to lois i think he was putting it all together at that point that uh, the toys were going to mean something the things inside these little statues so now what, but, I, what i like about this episode is i didn't do this and but you probably could kind of follow along and see you know if you had a little paper and pen with you yeah, you could probably in the, write down all the clues and see and see if you can figure it out. Right, because I think they do tell you what all the pieces are. Right, before Clark solves the puzzle, at least in the unedited versions, the ones for me TV. I'm not sure. No. <laughs> they might come back after Superman saves Jimmy from the safe right. from the last episode and say, "Hey, I figured out the new puzzle." From what I could tell is that he figured it out already because. Some of the things that he was crossing off just seemed random to me. Right. Like I said, this is a very fun episode. Yeah, I do love this episode a lot because of the 
Well, mainly because of Phyllis Coates in this one and how she handles it. And then Clark, because uh, this is not really a big Superman episode, no, it's but it's, it's, a, it's a Clark episode and a, and a Lois one of the two of them working together to solve this puzzle. It was, you know, it's terrific. Another, was... another detective story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got anything uh, else on this episode? No, I think that does about does it. Of course, if you wanted me to, I could talk another hour and a half on it. But no, I think that's about it. I, I like this episode a lot. Yeah. All right. So I'll go straight into some feedback here. I, I got an iTunes review from uh, Dave McElvaney. All right. Hi, Dave. Yeah. You sent me a five-star review on June 9th, so I much appreciate that. And Dave writes, I only recently discovered this podcast due to a guest appearance by Bob Fisher, whose podcast I have been following for some time. The first episode I listened to was episode 15, in which host Mike Zumo and guest Bob Fisher discussed The Adventures of Superman, the TV show from the 1950s, which has been my own introduction to a live-action Superman. I enjoyed that discussion enough to go back and start listening to back episodes of the Man of Screen podcast. I decided to sample episodes from different periods, the Fleischer cartoons, the Kirk Allen serials, the use of character of Superman in the Supergirl TV show, and the recent Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice movie. Host Mike Zumo clearly has a strong affection for the character of Superman and enjoys exploring ways in which the Man of Steel has been presented on the screen. The title of my review referring to Big and Small is because he has looked at Superman on the big screen and is beginning to look at him on the small screen as well. Mike also gives both synopses and commentary on these adventures, and these are a genuine treat. I look forward to catching up on all the back episodes and listening to new episodes as they arrive. And, well, thank you, Dave, for your review. And the first thing I want to do is, if you're listening to my episodes right in a row, I want to apologize to anyone to having to listen to my voice for that long. <laughs> you know, I'm glad that I'm picking up a lot more listeners with, as we move into this series. Well, good. Uh, Dave's a good good guy. Dave uh, is, is listens to my Superman Forever podcast and the Giant Superman podcast that I do with John M. Wilson. Right. And Dave's a great guy. Sent me some great email, and, and we've had uh, some correspondence, become Facebook friends. So uh, thanks, Dave. That was really nice. Yes, thank you, Dave. And a- after a couple of days, I kind of feel validated by uh, changing my page from a page from, to a group. Right. There's a lot more activity in there now than there was on the page. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So every time I post stuff to the page, I always felt like Douglas Meacham was the only one who saw it. <laughs> but And actually, Dave posted something today that he posted uh, an old adventures co- adventure comic issue. And a few episodes I talked about Adam and versus Superman where I talked about how the empty doom seemed like a proto-phantom zone. Mm, right. And apparently... When they introduced the Phantom Zone in, in the adventure comic, they repeated some of the things Serial did, like the ghostly Superboy and Superboy communicating with his father by manipulating an electric typewriter. Right. So, Yeah, they reckoned that later so that Phantom Zone people couldn't do that. Right. You can't do anything. But you could, with Jewel Kryptonite, allowed certain Phantom Zone members to combine their mental effort. Right. And focus it through the jewel kryptonite. That was all in the comics. I like when stuff from the adapted media makes it into the comics. Right. And that happened a lot. Right. From everything from, well, Jimmy Olsen to... The Daily Planet. 
to Daily Planet, to Kryptonite, to so many different things started in the radio series and was brought over to both the TV show and then, of course, the comics. Now, as long as it's not overdone. Right. So take note, Jeff Johns. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff's been working hard lately. Yes. And I got a few more posts from the Facebook page that I want to share. Tom Benya thanked me for mentioning him on the show. If uh, you remember a few weeks ago when I told the Gettysburg story. Right. My friend, the friend that I mentioned was Tom Benya. He lives in Arizona. Now, I didn't mention the thing. I wasn't sure how he felt about it. But since he put his name on the Facebook, I thought I'd mention him again. And I got a comment from Dave saying, you're having Bob Fisher as a guest on this episode was what drew me in. I enjoyed this episode so much. I subscribed to the podcast and am going back and listening to past episodes. Once again, Dave, my apologies. <laughs> I just finished listening to your extra episode on Superman's role and usage on the Supergirl TV show, which was excellent. Thanks. Yes. And when I posted we were going to be recording soon, Frank Roach said it was great news, and he said our first Adventures of Superman episode was terrific. So thank you for everybody who wrote in. Yeah. You can continue to write in. Uh, you can leave me email at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can find the Facebook group by searching for the Man of Screen podcast. And the show is on Twitter at Man of Screencast. So, Bob, where can they find you? Well, find me a couple places, but my main show is the Superman Forever radio podcast. And you can find that at the supermanforever.com. That's the website, supermanforever.com. And then, of course, we're on iTunes and anywhere you get podcasts, you can subscribe to it. Episode 101, as we record this, just hit today, uh, talking about rebirth a little bit. And I do a show with John M. Wilson called The Giant Superman Podcast, where we take a look at the Silver Age through those giant 25-cent, 80-page giant annuals. And having a blast doing that. John is a very fun guy. And so that's a monthly thing. And that's basically where you can find me. I'm also on Facebook, just under my name, Bob Fisher. And I also have a page for the Superman Forever Podcast page. So... You go to Google and type in Superman Forever and you'll find me. All right. So next time, Bob will be back. Yay! And we'll <laughs> be looking at the next two episodes of The Adventures of Superman, The Monkey Mystery, and Night of Terror. Until then, folks, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com Thanks for listening.